Ha'at min ha'or Doche harbe choshech Got that? min ha'or Doche harbe choshech A little bit of light dispels the darkness, a little bit of light dispels the darkness, mayat min ha'or. Doche harbe choshech, meyat min haor. Doche harbe choshech. Friends, if you ask me what it means to be a Jew, one of the top three answers I'd give is a people of hope, a people of faith in a future. And that is to say, the antithesis is cynicism. Cynicism says, oh, I throw my hands up. I'm full of despair. As Rabbi Nachman famously said, Ein yeush be'olam klal. Ein yeush be'olam. He screamed it. It was a famous moment among, among his chassidim, where Rabbi Nachman of Breslov said, Ein yeush be'olam. There's no despair in the world. Despair is the antithesis of faith. Now, what do we mean by faith here? We don't necessarily mean there's a metaphysical God and that God is going to intervene and make everything good. That's not my theology. Maybe it's yours, and I don't want to detract from that. But um, I don't sort of pray for something, and it kind of happens the way I want it. Um, but actually, uh, I'm going to leave it as a question rather than an answer. This idea of how we draw a faith, where we cultivate a hope in the notion of progress or in the notion of a future which contains goodness for ourselves and for others that we care about. And so... Um, and so meyat minha or docha harbechoshech means that it's not some grand cosmic messianic redemption. It's not a rupture in continuity, but rather each of us lights a little light in each moment. And those little lights create a huge bonfire, a huge global bonfire. And that's why I continue to believe that the news is not fake news because it's lies, but it's fake news because it creates a perception that evil is winning in the world. If you read the news in general, you will get the sense that every, everything around us is a murder and a theft and a deception and a corruption and a persecution, right? In fact, I was thinking about this yesterday. You would get the sense also, um, even though all of that is partially true. I mean, it, I mean, it is true news. But if you, that's all the access you had into the world. If you're isolated in your apartment, not going out in the world, not talking to people living in a pandemic where all you can access of the world is through the news, you'd also get the sense that the Jews are not a little unsafe, but completely unsafe. I shared some anti-Semitism news yesterday around uh, the toppling of a, of a menorah in Ukraine and someone coming onto a Belgian train saying, get the Jews off or I blow up the train. And then the attack, the knife attack at the menorah lighting in Kentucky, that was just one morning's news. And if you read this stuff, you'd say, oh my goodness, we're in the middle of a, another Shoah, whatever the case is. If you read the threats to Israel, if you read the threats to the Jewish people, but the, but the news is deceptive. Again, not because I don't believe in the integrity of the media and that the news itself is not true, but because it is one snapshot 
into the reality of what's existing. In addition to empiricism, in addition to relationships, in addition to the spiritual worldview that emerges, in addition to our own moral intuitions as they arise from our encounters. And so that's why I continue to believe at every moment there are more acts of love happening than acts of hate. There are more charitable good acts emerging in every moment than, than evil acts. At every moment, there are more people holding the hands of a dying stranger. There are more therapists listening empathically to those who are, are struggling. There are more school teachers patiently teaching the lesson again to a young child, right? There are more people who are truly holding up justice as police officers, as attorneys, as judges, right? As civilians, there is at, at, at every moment more acts of love and of kindness than there are of these acts of evil that emerge. And for us to remember that and keep our finger on the pulse of that. And the way we do that is by lighting a light, lighting a little light wherever we go. And so it's true that we do this only eight nights of the year, only eight nights of the year do we physically light these little lights. But that is what I believe every ritual is about. It is about a habituation to doing it beyond. You take the physical act and you say, how will I spiritually live this beyond? Pesach is not these eight days. Pesach is saying, remove the chametz from your home. Take the bread out of your home for eight days to remember oppression, historical oppression. And now don't stop Pesach. All year is Pesach. All year, remove the chametz of your soul. Remove the callousness and the hardness of, of our own spirit all year. So too of Hanukkah, we physically light those candles eight days, but every day we light the menorah. Every day we go out and we say, how am I spiritually going to bring light to others, right? And there's no objective way to do that. Each of us has a different way. Some of us might be philanthropists. Some of us might be teachers or counselors. Some of us may be um, doing that for a family member. Or, 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 for, or, you know, fill, fill in the blank. We have our own ways of, of bringing light. And all of us should be proud of those ways, right? As Reb Shalom Avobi um, taught um, that a, a shoemaker, with every stitch of that shoe, we were exploring this a few weeks ago in our Shabbat, our Shabbat group, with every stitch of that shoe, the intentionality with the shoemaker should be um, that they are, they are doing an act of loving kindness. Because someone's going to wear this shoe and that shoe is going to be supported because the shoemaker stitched every one of those stitches in there. So in fact, anything we're doing from washing the dishes to sending a supportive email to making a phone call to sending $18 in the mail, we do it as an act of love, knowing that other people, billions of people around the world are doing acts of love at the same moment. And love is, and love is, over conquering, is conquering over hate and light is, over, is overcoming darkness at those moments. It's the same thing as the MLK speech to the street workers, when he said to these street workers, what they're actually doing, they're not cleaning streets, they're holding up society. They're holding up society in ways that we all are doing. We're all doing here. So friends, I'm gonna share a little bit here and the, the, the chat will be open over there if you want to uh, put any comments or questions, agreements, disagreements, whatever you wanna put um, over there, I'll respond to that. And then we'll open up the floor as we go a little bit as well uh, th through this as well after we go through a little bit. Um, okay, if we can put the first source on the screen, I know it was emailed out to you, so you might have it open, but in case you don't, we'll put it on the screen as well over there. Now, it's interesting, friends. Why is there not a tractate in the Talmud about Hanukkah? There's, there's over 50 tractates, over 60 tractates. Shabbat and Yoma is Yom Kippur, you have Rosh Hashanah, and you have 
you know, things around uh, the killing of animals. You have really little dozens and dozens of topics. Eruvin, how you build an Eruv, a string. Why isn't there a Hanukkah? In fact, all you have on Hanukkah is this over here. You have almost nothing about Hanukkah in the thousands of pages of the Talmud. And here's what it, here's all it has. It literally reads like the way you would explain Hanukkah to a young child today. What is the reason of Hanukkah? That's their question. My Hanukkah. What is this all about? Hanukkah, what is this? For our rabbis taught on the 25th of Kislev. So we have a son named Lev and, 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 and we kiss him all month in the month of Kislev. <laughs> on the 25th of Kislev, commence the days of Hanukkah, which are eight and on which a lamentation for the dead and fasting are forbidden, right? We try not to mourn. We want to be joyful. For when the Greeks entered the temple, they defiled all the oils therein. And when the Hasmonean dynasty prevailed against and defeated them, they made search and found only one cruise of oil, which lay with the seal of the high priest, but which contained sufficient for one day's lighting only. Yet a miracle was wrought therein, and they lit the lamp therein for eight days. The following year, these days were appointed a festival with the recital of Hallel, right? The, the, the Psalms and Thanksgiving. That's it. Friends, that's it. What, what is this all about? And why is this all we have about Hanukkah? And why do they emphasize this? They, ask any child, Jewish child. They'll say, what's Hanukkah about? There was enough oil for one night and it lasted for eight. But that's not what Hanukkah is ultimately about, right? We all know that. Okay, that, that's a nice story. But this was a war. This is the only Jewish holiday which, which commemorates a war, right? No other Jewish holiday is about a war fundamentally. And the Jews survived the war, and they made a holiday about that. And why do the rabbis not want to list that? Because we think about the Jews are divided today. Oh, we got reform and renewal and reconstruction as a conservative and liberal Orthodox and the ultra-Orthodox. And, and, the, and these ones don't like those ones. And those ones are real Jews. And those ones are fake Jews. And, and then not to mention the, our new political divides, not to mention denominational divides. Jews, well, are we one people? Are we still one people? It's a question we think about, right? And what does it even mean for this to be one people if we hold drastically different values and can't even agree on who's a part of these people? So we think we're so divided today, but friends, we got it pretty good today. Back in the Second Temple period, that was real division. That, there we had a dozen real factions. You had the Zealots, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. You had groups that had fundamental, not to mention the emerging Christians. I mean, obviously, that's a, a ways off. Paul, Paul is the real inventor of, of Christianity, you know, uh, well off, um, you know, that emerges fundamentally different than first century um, you know, theology over there. Um, but you have real divisions of what's emerging. And the rabbis rejected military Judaism. The rabbis rejected it, right? The, um, uh, um, and so we see here that the Pharisees, as they emerge, these are a people who choose Yavne over Jerusalem. They say, you know what? I got three choices and not one of them is going to be to stay and fight and be here and have sovereignty. We wanna be a people of the book, not a people of the land, was their decision. They could have asked, they just said, give me Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv didn't exist. Give, I, mean, I mean, the land was there, but there was no city Tel Aviv. Give me Tel Aviv, give me Haifa. You know what, how about Eilat? We love the beach. We, we would love to be on the beach. The future of the Jews will be a people of Eilat. They didn't ask for any of that. They said, give us Yavne. Let us have, let us have this academy where we're gonna invent Judaism. Now that's gonna sound radical to some because we think of continuity, but they invented modern Judaism as we know it, rabbinic Judaism. Prior to that, what were we? We were a, uh, a people of kingdoms with kings. We were a prophetic religion. 
We were a priestly religion with a temple, with animal sacrifices. Now is the invention of rabbinic Judaism. And with their invention of rabbinic Judaism, they were not interested in militaries and of might and of fighting or of even being a broad people. They were people that were elite. They were elitists. They wanted to be an intellectual people of the book. And so they rejected this story. They said, we don't want a celebration of, uh, of, of war. That's what the other group was about. They wanted to be, they wanted, they wanted to, the Bar Kokhva uh, uh, revolts. Um, they wanted to, they wanted to uh, uh, go over there and be zealots, right? Um, they wanted to be militarists. They wanted to be hawks. We're not hawks. We're people of the book. So they rejected the Hanukkah narrative and took the whole story about being about a war out and said, this is about a miracle, about a little bit of oil, a little bit of oil. And now we're going to tell you how to light your menorah. Are you going to write it from, light it from the right to the left or the left to the right? We'll analyze that for hours, right? We don't want military drills. We want Talmudic analysis. We want pill pool. Okay, so that's what's going on over here. And I think, and that's why Hanukkah is so marginalized in the rabbinic tradition. And, and that's also why um, uh, the rabbis are, are major pacifists. The rabbis are pacifists. Now, the the uh, one read of that is is that um, powerless people. Um, uh, th- that is natural for a powerless people in many ways. Uh, it emerges from their from an ethic of powerlessness, from their context that they would have been squashed um, as they were, as they were. Uh, and the other approach is that they, on an ethical level, not just in historical context, on ethical level, were pacifists. Um, and so they make the entire story about these little menorahs and pursue Nisa, publicizing the miracle about oil, which is um, relatively uh, trivial. I mean, who cares? Who cares that the oil lasted a few more days? Like, whoop de doo I'm sorry if that sounds like a little sacrilegious, but like, I, I, I'm not all excited about oil lasting a few extra days, you know? The survival of the Jewish people, that's something to get excited about. The physical survival, the spiritual survival of the Jews, amazing. Okay, a little oil lasts a little long. Okay, I'm not going to write home to my mother. You know, not super exciting. Okay, so uh, let's go to Maimonides. So Rambam, as, as, uh, as in that tradition, is very interested in what do you do with limited resources? It's something we all think about. And here's what Maimonides says over here. If such a poor person has to choose between oil for both a house lamp, Shabbat, and a Hanukkah lamp, or oil for a house lamp on Shabbat, and wine for the sanctification, right, for Kiddush, the house lamp should have priority for the sake of peace in the household, seeing that even a divine name might be erased to make peace between husband and wife in that context. Great indeed is peace for as much as the purpose for which the whole of the Torah was given is to bring peace upon the world. As it is said, its ways are ways of pleasantness and all its paths are peace. Now, isn't that amazing that the entire story of Hanukkah, which is about military victory, but Rambam now spins it to say that at this very time, what we're going to emphasize is shalom, is peace, is peace. So he says, if you only have enough money to buy Shabbat candles or Hanukkah candles, which one do you buy? Shabbat candles, right? And he doesn't give the obvious reason. The obvious reason is lighting Shabbat candles is biblical. And obviously lighting Hanukkah candles is rabbinic. And biblical mitzvot always outweigh Rabbinic meets vote. Always. That's why we say something like pikuach nefesh, saving life, is going to outweigh some other rabbinic idea. 
Um, now that gets complicated because what do you do when you say all of the biblical tradition is interpreted through the lens of the rabbinic tradition? What's actually biblical anymore and what's rabbinic? In any case, he goes on to say here that um, the purpose of lighting Shabbat candles is uh, shalom bait, peace in the home, peace in the home, something we can never downplay, the importance of peace in the family. Um, it is very easy. And, and here I, I, uh, I, I, I respectfully disagreed uh, with our great teacher, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory, who was uh, just a profound thinker and author and philosopher but um, was, much, was much more interested in interfaith dialogue than in interdenominational dialogue. And, and, and one of his reasons, as I shared on the Jonathan Sachs legacy session, was that he thought um, that when you can walk away from someone, it, you have to be more careful in the relationship. And so Jews and Christians can walk away from each other. Jews and Muslims can walk away. So we have to be very sensitive. But Jews and other kinds of Jews, oh, we're bound together. So you can be more rude. You can alienate, right? You can argue and fight because at the end of the day, you're still gonna to be together. It's not so clear. It's not so clear that it works like that. In any case, um, the idea of peace in the family, peace in the community, peace in the world is so important that it outweighs the Hanukkah message of Persumenisa, of, of, of the performance of miracles. And to be sure, he explains this idea of Shalom as being an attribute of God in which we should emulate, that we should in spreading our candles uh, celebrate that. Now, many people use Hanukkah to, uh, to demonstrate Jewish sovereignty, to demonstrate Jewish militarism, to demonstrate uh, Jewish power. And um, I'm not here to diminish that. I think at being powerless for 2,000 years, it makes a lot of sense to me why Jewish power and Jewish sovereignty would want to be celebrated, right? Um, and uh, once you have, you really have to experience powerlessness and a Holocaust to then understand the, the significance of having sovereignty and of power. And so I appreciate those who want to be public. They want to put the menorah out in city hall, even though I, I personally don't believe in that because I, I believe in separation of religion and state. But I, but on a spiritual level, I appreciate what they're doing. Or those in Israel who want the menorahs everywhere, you know, um, whatever the case is. But in, in, in any case, more important, the Rambam says, than the demonstrate that demonstrating Jewish power is demonstrating the Jewish value of peace as it emerges from, from Shabbat. So where does the peace begin? Here's Reb Simcha Banim. Reb Simcha Banim, source three here. Reb Simcha Banim says, the sages said, seek peace in your place and pursue it in another place. You cannot seek peace anywhere but within yourself until you find it there. In the Psalms, it said, there is no peace in my bones because of my sin. Only if we find peace inside ourselves can we seek it throughout the world. And so this is an interesting challenge around how our spiritual life is informs our public service, our civic engagement, our social action life, however we understand our public societal role in relationship to our particular role, or how our Jewish identity informs our human identity or our American identity, this idea that we start within. We start within. And I would suggest that those who have not found peace within might create more harm than good by trying to, to, to foster peace outside, right? And those, those who have not mastered certain attributes internally, very difficult to foster those externally. And so, what a meditation for lighting the menorah. I want light in the world. What's the work I need to do tonight to bring light internally? What is the healing I need to do? 
What is the introspection and the reflection? What is the, the, the psychoanalytical process I need to invest in? Right? What is the spiritual work that I need to engage in to start to drive away some of that darkness and to have light internally such that it emanates externally in a way that brings more light than heat, in a way that brings more light than fire? And so Reb Sim Chabanim says, seek peace in the world, seek peace in society, start internally. And so then, friends, here's a meditation for tonight. When you light your, when you light your Hanukkah, light your Hanukkah before you light your Hanukkah. Think about that. Stand there and think about what it means to light your internal flame before you light your external flame, right? I mean, what, a, what an amazing opportunity to think about what that even means to us on a personal level. As Viktor Frankl famously said, more important than the question of, What's the purpose of purpose of life is what's the purpose of my life? So more important than some objective fire is what is the fire that sustains me? My goodness, economic uncertainty and political divisions and a pandemic and all of our frailty and mortality that we experience and all the challenges of mental health and, and physical health and maintaining all this. We, we're going to need a pretty strong fire to sustain ourselves in this, right? Maybe you're the fortunate type who has resilience built into your DNA. Right, you could just keep going through anything without any, without any uh, looking the other way. Or maybe you're like most of us who uh, who get down a little bit, right? You feel despair sometimes. You feel you feel that darkness, and you feel alone in that. And so, how are we going to light our own our own kanukia? Um, and if we can't do that, if we can't do that, then let's figure out a plan as to what process is going to help us light that in the other days to come. Right? Who are the people I need to surround myself with safely? Right? What are the ideas I need to surround myself with or the ideas I need to break from? Right? Is social media helpful for me or toxic for me? Right? Which relationships are, 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 are fueling me? And speaking of fuel, we speak so much about the flames, about the lights of the Hanukkah, but we don't think as much about the oil that sustains that, sustains that light. So maybe in lighting our internal Hanukkah tonight, before we light the external one, we can think, what is the oil in my life that keeps that spiritual flame alive? What is the oil that has to be replenished on a daily level so that my flame is lit? You know, one of my favorite Torahs um, is the Sne Enenu Ukal, the burning bush that is not consumed, because it is a model to never be a fundamentalist and never be a relativist. The fundamentalist is so on fire, they burn everyone else around them. The relativist has no fire inside themselves at all. So they're burnt out. The burning bush that does not consume has a flame that does not burn others and does not burn out. The Sneinenu call. That's, that's a model. To not be a fundamentalist and not be a radical relativist, but to have a flame that's on fire, but not burning out and not burning others. Okay, but who wants our light? Who am I lighting this flame for anyways? Who even wants this stuff, right? Okay, here's what it says in Bamidbar, source four, numbers right there. Speak to Aaron and say to him, when you light the lamps, the seven lamps shall cast their light toward the face of the menorah. Okay, okay, pretty uninteresting. By the way, it's kind of a, a misnomer that we call the Hanukkah menorah, right? Because the menorah in the Beit HaMikdash is seven candles, right? And that's what the menorah is. It's the seven candles for the seven days of the week in the temple, right? 
the Hanukkah is commemorating the Hanukkah story. That's why it's eight nights. So it's not really, I mean, I guess you could call it, it's a type of menorah, you might say, but really it's, a, it's ultimately a Hanukkah. So here's what Numbers Rabbah says. This is the Midrash, the rabbinic teachers, the rabbinic teaching on um, that passage we just saw. Next source here, here we go. Uh, there we go. The above verse may be compared to a king Right, the, the the rabbis loved uh, putting everything into the analogies of, of kings because that's the that's in many ways the world they knew. The above verse may be compared to a king who had a beloved friend and told him, "I'm coming to your home for dinner. Go and make preparations for me." His friend went and prepared a simple bed and a simple table and a simple lamp. When the king came, with him came his surrounding entourage and a golden lamp in front of him, borne by a servant. When his friends saw all the, all of the honor for the king. He became embarrassed and hid behind all that he had prepared, for it was so ordinary. The king said, didn't I tell you I'm coming for dinner? Why haven't you prepared anything for me? His friend said, I saw all the honor that surrounds you. And I became embarrassed and I hid everything I prepared for you, for it was so ordinary. We got to go down. The king replied, by your life, I reject everything that I brought. Because of my love for you, I only want to use your things. I only want to use your things. So what's happening there? We say new. If on a Kabbalistic level, God is light. God is all the light in the universe, right? Um, which is a different way than thinking of God as an all-powerful king. But God, God has spiritual light. God wants our, our, little, our, our little wimpy menorahs, these little candlelights. Right? What is that? I'm embarrassed. I want to hide it from God. This is all I have to offer is these little lights in front of the great spiritual bonfire of divinity. Right? I'm embarrassed. To, I want to hide my food from the king. You know, sometimes I, I feel this. Uh, you know, we have, we have, uh, we have uh, guests in our home for Shabbat. I mean, not, it's been a while now. Guests in our home for, for Shabbat. And, you know, we've got this little dining room and this, uh, this, this cheap china and our, our little uh, kale, kale with barbecue sauce, and whatever, you know, whatever we have. And uh, our $9 bottle of wine, you know, I, I'm a little embarrassed. I, I, I kind of want to hide it away a little bit. You know, the people could have gone out to a nice dinner. You know, sat in some really comfortable chairs, you know, not heard a baby cry. I'm a little embarrassed, you know. And so you want to kind of hide it away. So so he wants to hide the food from the king. This king is not going to want my food. But the king said, I want your things because I love you. I love you. I, I'm, I'm here not for the best meal in the world. I'm here for your meal. I'm here for, to smell your home, right? I'm not here for the objective best. I want the relationship. So too, the God of all light sees our little Hanukkiyot, right? It doesn't see those are little, oh, your menorah only costed $75, right? You should have bought a $1,000 menorah. Or those little flames like, oh, what is that? I can hardly even see them. You should have got Christmas lights on your front lawn. Uh, that would have been a good welcome, right? <laughs> right? But actually, God says, I want your light. I want the light that you're going to bring me because I love you. I love you. That's the way I experience. One of my children writes a little misspelled little love note to me. You know, Abba, I love you. Thank you for everything. It takes me 10 minutes to read it because I can't read the letters. And I love it. I love it not because it has any external value. I can't sell it on Amazon. Well, actually, you can't sell anything As on, on whatever that place, eBay, whatever you, that place used to be, you could sell your stuff, you know. But, but I, I, it, go, 
goes on my wall here because because I love her and and I and I love this, right? And that's the menorah that we bring our own light into the world, and it's valuable not because it's a massive bonfire, not because it's expensive, right? It's valuable because it comes from our heart. It comes from our heart. And that's the service we bring into the world. We need not be jealous of someone else's service. They donated more money. They offered more volunteer hours. They have more to give in the world because it's all relative in this regard. We bring our heart and our purpose into the world with our passion and in our love. And whatever we offer is so beautiful. It's so beautiful because it's us. It's who we are meant to be in the world, to bring what we can bring. It's what, it's what a mother or father brings to their child. It's not objectively better than what their friend can give them or what their teacher can give them or their rabbi or whoever gives them things. It's special because it's their parents giving it to them, right? And when we give with such love, and that's what lighting our Hanukkah, our Hanukkah is about. It is about coming back in touch with our purpose. What am I here to do in the world? And I don't need a perfect answer to that. And that service will never be, never look perfect or feel perfect, but we're going to put our heart into it. We're going to put our heart into it. And when we light that Hanukkah, we know that we're bringing not only all of Jewish history, not only those miracles and the miracles of today, but we're putting our own internal light, our own souls into that lighting. How is that manifest? Let's go to source five. I'm gonna open it up after these next two sources for, for conversation. Here's what it says in the Talmud. Rabbi Simlai taught, the Torah begins with deeds of loving kindness and ends with deeds of loving kindness. Actually, it's interesting. Uh, well, actually, let me say something about that before I say what the tangent. Um, what, what, how does it begin with loving kindness? God clothes Adam and Chava. Adam and Eve are naked, and God, they, they re, they're naked. God, they realize their nakedness after, after they become morally awake. That's actually interesting. How when we, when we immorally evolve, we become more in touch with our own vulnerabilities and imperfections. It's scary to morally evolve, to hold more empathy in our hearts, to hold more compassion, right? We start to feel more vulnerable we start to realize with an expanded sense of self how much more vulnerable that is. I mean, here's the obvious example. You have a child that moves out of the house. Well, forget even move out of the house. They start going to school, right? Now you're more vulnerable because an extension of yourself is now wandering around the world, right? They're out there in the world. And it's, it, it, you, care, you love them like they're, they're yourself and yet you're not in control. It's gone. They're, as your compassion, your love expands. You become more vulnerable, right? If, if I have no love, I can be very safe. I can just sit in this little room and love no one and just lock the doors and be, be very safe in this, in this little locked space without loving anyone and not be vulnerable at all. But Adam and Eve become vulnerable because they eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And now that they're aware of, their, of the moral potential of the human being, they see their nakedness. And in seeing their nakedness, God clothes them. So what does that look like to feel our vulnerability in, our, in actualizing our compassion and then being clothed in divine light, in divine light? Because or is or, or is light and or is leather. They were clothed in leather, but they were clothed in light ultimately. 
right? It says that they say over there, the Hasidic teachers, that that leather will be transformed into ultimately into light or with an ayin and or with an aleph. So, so the Torah begins with deeds of loving kindness and it ends with deeds of loving kindness. It ends with God burying Moshe. Nobody's allowed to attend the funeral because they don't want this to be a place that people are going to idolize Moshe. We're, we don't idolize people. And so no one attends the funeral or the burial. We don't even have a marking place for it because he's a, a, the greatest prophet of the tradition. We can't have a place that would become too, uh, too emphasized. Just like Moses's name is not mentioned in the Haggadah. In the Pesach, Pesach story, you don't see the name of Moses. I mean, what an amazing thing, right? Imagine telling, imagine talking about this 1960s civil rights Imagine talking about the 1960s civil rights story and never mentioning Martin Luther King Jr. Said, you're not allowed to mention him. Don't mention anyone, right? Tell the story without him. Now you're going to read the Haggadah and you're going to tell Yitziat Mitzrayim and Kriyat Yamsuf. You're going to tell the story of leaving Egypt and you're going to tell the story of the splitting of the sea without ever mentioning the man who led the whole story or, or ostensibly led the story. And so God buries him alone an act of kindness. And so these become paradigmatic acts of kindness, clothing people and burying people. Okay. Now it's interesting. Um, um, uh, the first, uh, the first letter, what's the first letter of the Torah? Bet, right? Bereshit. What's the last letter of the Torah? Lamed. Yisrael, right? Israel, Yisrael. What happens when you put the last letter of the Torah together with the first letter of the Torah? Lev. Lev. Heart. Heart. Lamed and Bet is Lev. Heart. That is to say, what is the Torah ultimately about? Opening our hearts. Opening our hearts. And so that's what the rabbis say here. The Torah begins with, with loving kindness. It ends with loving kindness. That's the whole Torah, friends. Now go and study it. As they say, tell me, this, tell me the Torah on one foot. The Torah is to open our hearts, to live emulating the divine compassion, and then to take that out into the world. Okay, now we can't not say something about Israel, Zionism, peoplehood before we open it up for conversation. And here's Reb Daniel Hartman um, summarizing his father, David Hartman's approach on optimism without naivete. Maybe you're someone who you know you're a pessimist. Maybe that served you well. Uh, I think evolutionary psychology tells us to be pessimists, <laughs> right? Always be a little afraid because something's going to jump out of the bush and whack you, right, at any moment. So be ready. But you can make a counter argument to that also. Okay, and maybe maybe you pride yourself on being an optimist. You said, "Oh, I, I'm a I'm a glass half full kind of kind of kind of woman," you know. Um, or maybe you're someone who says like this: optimism without naivete. I'm a uh, realist, yeah, you know, realist. You know? <laughs> so here's what he writes over here. The Jew requires the courage to dream and aspire for a better tomorrow. Pessimism is a luxury that Jews could never afford. On Hanukkah, we celebrate the fact that oil, which was sufficient for only one day, lasted for eight. My father teaches that the miracle of the first day is that we had the courage to light the menorah, even though we did not know where the oil would come from in the future. Isn't that a cool idea, right? That you keep going when you have no idea how you'll keep going, right? You light the first night of the Hanukkah thinking that's all you got. How embarrassing this is going to be. I'm going to light the first night and then I'm done. I shouldn't even start at all, right? Why should I embark upon a journey that I can't complete, right? 
Imagine you, 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 you got to travel through the desert. You're an immigrant who needs to travel through the desert. It's going to take you eight days to get it to the border where you're going to get food. Hopefully uh, it's going to take you eight days to get there. You only have enough food in your bag for one. Why would you go on the journey? You'd be a fool or super desperate, super desperate. The characteristic of the Jewish people is that we have the courage to dream, yearn, and begin without certainty as to the future, right? I mean, you want to be a real chacham. You predict, you predict either what's never going to be measured or what's inevitable, right? <laughs> you know, oh, yeah, you got it right. You, you got something right that can never be measured or that was so obvious, was so obvious the result. But to bet on something that is so unlikely, you're going to bet on, you're going to say, I'm going to bet on the Jewish people when all of the history shows it's not going to, it's going to end in flames. The ultimate symbol of this strength and character for my father is the rebirth of modern Israel, right? As he, so he is what you call a liberal, a liberal Zionist. That means he's not a post-Zionist. He's certainly not an anti-Zionist. He's also not a classical Zionist, but a liberal Zionist in that he believes in the idea and the manifestation of the Jews having sovereignty and the Jews having a homeland as a place of refuge, and that it's not merely a refuge, but that it should be an ethical light. And when it's not, we should hold it accountable. That is to say, we should both support and challenge Israel. That's what it, that's what it means for him to be a liberal Zionist. And, and he does that from within, having moved to Jerusalem and built institutions built around pluralism. He wants to challenge Israel for not being pluralistic enough. Built upon the conflict, he wants to push Israel harder to resolve the conflict um, around egalitarianism built into the modern state and so on and so on. Okay, in any case, the ultimate symbol of this strength and character of the Jewish people for my father is the rebirth of modern Israel. As a people, we had the courage to say, next year in Jerusalem. We said that even though we weren't sure it was going to happen for close to 2000 years and not lose hope. Israel is the symbol of a people who have the courage to not let reality define who they are, but rather understand that their will, their will must redefine reality to have the courage to dream that it will have a better tomorrow and devote oneself to making this dream a reality. And so, friends, I'm going to pause here. If you'll take it off the sources here, please, and uh, and you'll good. Thank you. And um, and I'm going to open it up. And I just want to kind of summarize a little bit of what we've said here so far before I open it up. That we we talked about why the rabbis downplayed Hanukkah, and the one uh, real place in the Talmud that Hanukkah is dealt with, and how they transformed a revision a revisionist uh, approach. Um, and they transformed the uh, the, histor the historical memory, the, histor not the historical understanding. And then Maimonides on the value of peace and what to do with limited resources. And then Reb Simcha Banim on how the peace starts internally to move externally, how it's a spiritual revolution. And then into Midr Numbers Rabbah on how these flames are ultimately about love and about kindness and about intersubjectivity, the intersubjectivity that emerges re in relational spaces. Um, rather than comparative jealousy or comparative resentment that our light is not enough, inadequacy, imperfection. And then we move into the purpose of Torah ultimately being about kindness, about chesed, and not being afraid to say that because there was a miss, there, there, there was a, a false narrative that Christians were about love and Jews were about justice. 
as a way to differentiate us historically, but that was ulti ultimately became an anti-Semitic notion as well. The Jews weren't people of love because that's a Christian idea, but to, to proudly say that love is the beginning and the essence of what Torah is about. And then to see as one model through the prism of Zionism, but can go beyond that as well, the idea of what it means to light, to kindle hope, to kindle faith in times of uncertainty. How, when we have no clear, no clear path and no clue how this will end, we continue to walk on a dark path because it's very easy to turn around. It turn around on the enterprise, the moral enterprise, the spiritual enterprise, the familial enterprise, and to turn around because we don't have enough oil in the lamp to last. We don't have enough food in the bag to get across the desert, right? We don't have enough historical uh, uh, power to understand that we can persevere, right? We don't have enough light to survive in that darkness. And yet, Hartman argues, that's what makes us Jews. What makes us Jews is to carry these little lights wherever we go and to make sure that whoever's in a place of darkness knows that there's a light at the end of the tunnel if we keep walking forward. Okay, let me pause here, friends, to take some questions or thoughts or ideas from other folks. Don't forget to unmute yourself, please. Shmuley, question. I was, uh, I've learned that uh, Hanukkah went away for approximately 300 years and was brought back by the rabbis. So the first question is, why did it go away and why was it brought back? Is that, if that story is true. Amazing. So thank you, Stan and Cheryl, for that. And um, it, it really is, um, uh, it, it really is uh, an amazing story of how holidays evolve given the historical context. You can ask your exact question about every Jewish holiday and how it becomes transformed when Jews live in a Muslim society or in a Christian society or when Jews have sovereignty when Jews are rich or when Jews are poor, how it gets transformed in the golden age of Spain. Because I want to rem remind us, friends, there's a false narrative. And here's the false narrative. Jews were powerless for 2,000 years. Then Jews got a state and Jews were safe. Now, that's a very clean and attractive uh, and romantic story. But Jews um, lived safely in many pockets, historical pockets, in many societies, in different eras. You can look, Bob, Bob Chazen has a powerful academic book on this, on the various time periods where Jews live safely in various societies. Now, when we say safely, we mean something different than we talk about in 21st century America. 21st century America, we mean uh, uh, something that's completely unprecedented, as you know, from just the most cursory read of, 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 of Jewish history, not to mention American Jewish history. But um, uh, because in all those cases where Jews were safe, they were still second-class citizens. They never had full rights in any of those cases, um, you know, even through the through, you know, through the 20th century, you know, you know, into the 20th century. Um, and so even the, the paradigmatic cases like the golden age of Spain, um, where Jews are safe and Gentiles are learning from Jews and Jews are learning from Gentiles and there really is security. There's still not full rights. Right. Um, uh, you know, OK, so anyways, more to say about that. But in any case, how do, what does Pesach mean? For a liberal American Jew in 2020, 
well, I can't speak for everyone, but the dominant idea is we're going to go fight injustice beyond the Jewish walls. Pesach is a story of, of social justice and liberation. This is the most common Jew, uh, Jewish American liberal narrative today. What are we going to talk about at the Seder table? We're going to talk about how we are now going to continue the Exodus story in our own time. What an empowered story. Historically, you couldn't find anything like that, right? We say, God should pour out God's wrath upon the Gentiles. Because all we knew was persecution. Well, not all we knew, but historically, we predominantly knew was this persecution. The idea of, I'm going to go into those circles and fight for the oppressed. I mean, it's amazing how, how much social justice Torah emerge, emerges from such a, uh, an oppressed minority. In any case, so that's Pesach, but that's true for every holiday. Um, Rosh Hashanah is transformed by New Year's. Um, the American notion of New Year's changes how we think of Rosh Hashanah. And that's why reform in Reform Judaism in America, um, for the last few decades, attendance in synagogue and Rosh Hashanah is declining. Well, I mean, this is one of the factors. Yom Kippur stays strong. I mean, it, it varies. But Rosh Hashanah is becoming a family holiday. A family holiday, a big dinner, a big dinner, your brisket or whatever you're going to do, a big dinner rather than a synagogue holiday, um, and, and which in American Jewish experience was not usually the case. Passover, who, who goes to synagogue on Passover? Nobody cares about synagogue on Passover. You know, you, go, you have a Seder, you know, but, and, and Rosh Hashanah is becoming like that. It's becoming a meal. And, and, one of the many reasons for that has to do with the American understanding of, uh, of, of, of New Year's. You make resolutions, you have a meal, you have a party, right? Um, this is a part of our assimilation uh, in, in American Judaism. And I don't say assimilation is a bad thing. You read all these demographic studies, assimilation is a bad word. I think assimilation is a good thing if, if, you don't, if you hold on to your Judaism. There's many good things in American society to, 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 to assimilate into. Acculturation, we can talk about. Right? How we take the best of American society and, and bring that in to enhance Jewish experience as we have. That's why American Jews have so much to offer to Israelis. Israelis know very little about pluralism. Israelis know very little about universalism, by and large. Of course, there's exceptions to that. Okay, in any case, back to Stan's point. Yeah, Hanukkah becomes muted. It's a muted story for the exact same reason we talked about earlier of an ethic of powerlessness, of a fear of power of a rabbinic tradition being uh, uh, emerging, which has no interest in, um, in violence, in violence, even, in, even self-defensive violence in many cases, where the rabbis um, uh, really, they, they change it all. They say the Torah says you, could, you, you have to do death penalty, gone. We don't want death penalty. The Torah says you have to kill the wayward child, gone. The Sota, what are you going to do to the adulterous women? Gone. They're going to make legal maneuvers to get rid of anything that appears uh, not only unjust, but appears violent. Warfare. They can't even think about it. They're going to talk about it in a historical place. right? What do you do in warfare? Let's, let's put it in its place historically. But they're not talking about, oh, we, their dream is not about sovereignty. Their dream is about a third temple. Right. And that's also interesting because it's a dream. I, I would argue this is controversial. It's a dream they never wanted fulfilled. The rabbis were on the opposition of the priests. Now, here's the political dimension of, of Hanukkah. The other reason why they diminish it. The rabbis don't want a priestly religion. They want a rabbinic religion. They're glad the Beit HaMikdash is destroyed. They don't want exile. They don't want death, of course. But Beit HaMikdash with Korbanot, a temple with animal sacrifices? No, no. We want to be enlightened, people of ideas, people of ritual, right? So why do they also diminish the Hanukkah story? 
we want to bury, we want to bury the priestly model of Judaism, right? We're going to be different than that. This is controversial, what I'm saying. <laughs> and so they they spend the next few centuries, um, they spend the next few centuries uh, moving away from sovereignty, from militarism, from priestly religion, and those models to cultivate something radically different and new. Why does it make a comeback later? That's a different part of the story. We would need a historian to show where and when uh, that emerges and and why at that at that time period as opposed to a different one. Um, but my prediction would be that it has to do with a, a more uh, a more empowered relationship to power. Okay, someone uh, else. Rabbi. Yes. Would partially of this moving away from the military also be a reaction and, and, and a learning from the total dominance of the Romans? And this and, and and the total, you know, and how that implied that survival depended on not appearing to be military and understanding that faith and learning was a way and ideas as how to survive and not military. I, I love mean, what you're saying. I love what you're saying, Michael. Thank you for that. Because um, as Mike rightly points out, so much of Judaism always, and this shouldn't make us embarrassed, I think, is is being constructed and reconstructed in relationship to the culture around them. In some cases, in an assimilated way, and in some cases, in an oppositional way. Amer American Orthodox Judaism is, is constantly reconstructed to be like evangelicalism. American Orthodox Jews want to be like evangelical Christians. That's why all of a sudden they're pro-life when they weren't pro-life a few decades ago. They said, we're not pro-choice, we're not pro-life, we're somewhere in between. Now they're pro-life because that's what evangelical Christianity says. American non-Orthodox Judaism in many ways assimilates into Protestant America. Of course, when Jews aren't Protestants, we're not evangelicals, but we are responding into the parts of American culture we like, right, and emerge. So too, the Babylonian Talmud, they like Zoroastrianism. Why can't, why should Jews have sex in the dark, the rabbis say? Because Actually, the whole relationship between doing having sex in the light or having sex in the dark is all about Zoroastrianism and the, and the theologies that emerge in that culture. Now, the Romans are the enemy. The Romans are the worst. We want everything to be not Greek and not Roman. What, what are they all about? Vanity. The Greeks love their bodies and their bathhouses, right? Um, obviously, if you know anything about the Greeks, they're, they're interested in a lot more than just that, right? And the Romans want imperial conquest. And you're totally right, Mike. They want to construct a Judaism that's anti-Greek, anti-Roman, right? We don't want to expand anywhere. Imperialism, like what a destruction of God's planet, right? And we don't want these bathhouses to beautify the body. That's why they become, they embrace theological dualism as opposed to monism. They want body and soul. They're not interconnected and related. They are separate entities because the Greeks love the body. And we are going to make Selim Elohim, humans created in the image, image of God, not about the physical body. It's going to be about our intellectual capacity. It's going to be about our spiritual potential for freedom. It's going to be about co the cognitive faculties, right? All these meta metaphysical dimensions are what's going to make us godlike because the Greeks like the body. Now, to be sure, there are some rabbinic sources that think the image of God means we're physically um, look like God to some degree, and that's that's a, that's uh, which is those sources are very interesting. But the the dominant thrust of of those sources want to make sure that the image of God is not about the body. Now, Levinas makes a tikkun on that. He makes a repair because he says the Holocaust. We have to prevent the Holocaust by people seeing the image of God in the face of the other. 
only if they see God in the physical face will they not kill them. If it's a metaphysics, they'll say, oh, that person doesn't have that metaphysical dimension. They're inferior race. Uh, it, yes, they look like a human being, but those Jews, they're inferior, right? Levinas says, no, the face is enough. So that's interesting, the return to the body in our day. In any case, Mike, I, I appreciate that comment because I think uh, you're absolutely right that this Hanukkah story is also an anti-Roman, anti-Greek uh, dimension. Okay, someone else, please. One more thing there before someone jumps in. Another case of ethic of powerlessness. Who is the hero? Who is the archetypal hero in all those stories? It is the, might, the, the mighty alpha male with a sword in the stone, right? He's going to go to battle. He's going to be on the front lines, and he's going to be a heroic, muscular uh, winner in battle, right? Of course, this, gets, th 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 this reemerges in Zionist heroism, how we think about battle. But um, what do the rabbis say, famously in Pirkei Avot? Ezehu Gibor, who is the mighty one, who is the strong one, who is courageous? Hakovesh et Yitzro, one who can conquer their own inner inclination. Who is the mighty one? Not someone who's physically strong. Someone who has self-control. Someone who has internal um, uh, uh, character. Someone who has restraint. It's an ethics of restraint. Okay, someone else, please. I, I wanted to comment. Molly, thank you. This was very interesting. I wanted to comment on the song that you uh, sang in the beginning. Me'at or docheta choshech. And the thought that crossed my mind is that it takes, if you are in a totally, totally dark room and you light even one little, just a match, suddenly it dispels all the, all the darkness. So it doesn't take, you know, if you're in total darkness, it doesn't take a big light to light it up. It actually mm -hmm. takes just a very little um match or a, a little candle that will dispel the dark it's no longer dark transform that's so, it so that's so, that's so beautiful hannah um thank you for that and that extra reminder building off what you're sharing there um that when you share light you don't lose light it's not a limited resource right in that regard um that if i have a piece of uh, bread and i share half of it i've i've lost half my bread if i light your candle i've, I've lost nothing I've lost nothing, that your light is not diminished when it's shared, um, which is a powerful thing around how we can light up that room, that a little bit can do it, but when we share it, then, then how much more light can come as well. Let's take, let's take, one, uh, let's take one or two more people. I put something in the, uh, in the chat. Oh, Judy, good, thank you. Do you wanna read that? Sure, um, it, it's from uh, the, the new nominee for the, the Centers for Disease Control. Um, Rochelle Walensky, who is not coincidentally Jewish, and she said, if I have a cup of water, I can put out a stove fire, but I can't put out a forest fire, even if that water is 100% potent. That's why everyone must wear a mask. As a nation, we'll recover faster if you give the vaccine less work to do when it's ready. So that's really akin to lighting one candle, each of us, if we mm. each wear a mask, if we each get the vaccine, it creates a greater potential for putting out forest fires. Thank you for that. What a, what a great and relevant point for this moment of the little things we can do that are actually not little. 
and how interconnected that those efforts are together. I saw someone say recently, what do you do if you see a huge fire building off what you're sharing there, Judy? Then you, you got to put, you got, you got to get the whole lake on top of it. What do you do if you don't have a lake? You got to get a hose. What do you do if you don't have a hose? You got to get a bucket of water. What do you do if you don't have a bucket? You got to get a cup of water. What do you do if you can't find a cup of water? You got to spit, right? So you, every little bit, you got to get whatever you can get to put out that fire. And indeed, um, this, is, this is an amazing, you know, the, uh, it's an amazing moment. The, the other thing I think of there, Judy, I oftentimes pe I hear people say, oh, where's the great leaders of our time? Where's the Rosa Parks and the MLKs or fill in the blank of whoever, you know, the, Gan the Gandhis or the Nelson Mandela's or whoever the people, where are these people? And um, it's almost like we've lost the great, but actually what's happened is more people are, are holding microphones, right? We've actually democratized, we've democratized the experience and that movement building is decentralized in many ways. And this can be scary for people who want to feel like there's one person in charge right? There's, there, there's the hero we can follow. But actually, it can be very empowering to think that no president is going to resolve this, right? This is going to take massive global and national cooperation. It's going to take every person choosing life, choosing life. And that's, once again, the Hanukkah story of, of we don't come together as a community for one menorah lighting. I mean, how cool that would be, but that's not what it's about. Yom Kippur, come together. Hanukkah, stay home. We, everyone's got to bring their own light to the world, right? This constant balance between the individual and the collective, right? Between um, um, uh, the community and, and, and ourselves. And so, uh, so thank you, Judy. Uh, let's take one more, one more comment from someone. One last comment from someone here. Don't be shy. I do have a question about saving life, uh, Shmuley. Great. Um, what I'm not understanding is what's happening in the ultra-Orthodox communities where they totally do not do anything to protect themselves against the pandemic, considering that the outmost mitzvah of Judaism is to protect life. Okay, amazing, amazing, thank you. So there's a few things to say there, um, and it's quite complicated, and then, and then we'll wrap up after that. Um, the first thing I want to say is that this is um, um, undoubtedly, um, once again, in, a, in assimilation into a certain political mindset in America today. This is not the ultra-Orthodox of 10 years ago. Okay, we're, we're ultra-Orthodox Jews uh, also uneducated in secular matters. Were they also deprived of, of the study of science? Yes. Ultra-Orthodox Jews know nothing about science, and that's a big problem. But it was never politicized like it is today. Now the value of science has been politicized to the extent that if you believe in science, you're being duped. You're being duped by the liberal establishment, right? And the ultra-Orthodox have, have drunk that Kool-Aid, that... Um, if I believe in this, that I am, in, I have in some ways uh, moved away from um, uh, 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 from my values. That's the but first. It's not thing. just in the United States, Willie. It's also in Israel. Because it's the same thing. Yeah, it's the same thing. The the, the, the that the establishment there is the liberal is, is the liberal establishment, right? Uh, even even if you wouldn't consider it liberal, I mean Netanyahu is not is not exactly a, a, a politically liberal, but they mean by liberal in this sense they sort of mean everyone who's not ultra orthodox, everyone all the Jews who have assimilated, 
And so, and so over there, the, it, it, and 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 the way it travels overseas is fascinating. Um, so, so, so that's the first thing: the political, the politicization of science, um, and and the assimilation into evangelical America once again. The second bit there, which has been strengthened, it, it was always there, but it's been strengthened. The idea that God will save us. The idea that um, divine intervention, if we are shom, if, shmira, if we have shmirat mitzvot, if we are observant, will enable us. And if it doesn't, that's also the divine plan, right? That the idea of not going to minion or not going a two thousand people to the funeral or a thousand people to the wedding, right, would mean to not live the divine truth. And so this is also about the relationship to innovation, to traditionalism. Nothing new can pause what I've known to be true uh, from days of old, right? Now, to be sure, there are people in that community that really get it and are pushing back hard, right? This is not just, um, it's not uh, a, um, uh, unanimous um, um, and completely ubiquitous, but rather there is diversity there. But, but, this, but, but, the, but the news loves to show how they're all violating it. And how they hate Cuomo and De Blasio, and you know, and you know, and others for for. Um, but but they have also it's a sign of empowerment. The fact that they are fighting in the government for their liberties, that they feel they've lost their liberty to attend these weddings and funerals, and they're fighting for that. I mean, the 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 ultra orthodox world has never known such empowerment. And in Israel, the number of seats they have in the Knesset and the future of, of Israel demographically. And to me, this is a scary reality. Look, I mean, I I have I have a Israel. I love Jews, but the, the ultra orthodox uh, values don't align with mine. And the future demographics of the state of Israel are going to be heavily ultra orthodox, in terms of uh, in terms of the number of children they're having and what that means for women, what that means for Arabs, what that means for non ultra orthodox Jews. What that means for peace, what that means for tikkun olam as as Medina Israel, I think is uh, is something uh, to be concerned about. And so, um, anyways, there's a lot more to say about this. Um, by the way, one last thing there: the value of health. Um, a study in Israel showed that there, the obesity is seven times as great in the ultra orthodox community than in the chiloni than in the secular world. And so, the value of the body, the physical world, just like the, the just like the rabbis wanted to. Um, uh, uh, compare them, contrast themselves to the Greeks and the Romans. The ultra Orthodox want to contrast themselves to the buff, the buff guy on the t- on, on the Tel Aviv beach. Oh, the Tel Aviv guy on the beach, that buff army guy. Oh, vanity. They, they they think their powers in their gun, the powers from God. They think their powers in their physical muscles, the powers in the Talmud. We don't want anything to do with that. Tofu? I don't need tofu, right? <laughs> Right. So uh, so they, they, they want a radically different vision. Friends, I'm sorry we went over time, but I just want to give everyone the bracha. I hope you'll give it back to me that we continue to persevere, continue to cultivate resilience, resilience, not only in physical survival, but that we can light our souls on fire. And in the process of doing that, we need not light someone else's candle. It will emanate from us. Fire spreads. And when fire spreads, it can be destructive. It can be a pandemic. Or when love spreads, it can also be viral, and our light can go viral as it as it is become as it as it reaches other souls as well. It's like it, it's like Shlomo Ibn Gabriel said in the 15th century, the great Kabbalist, that of two string instruments across from each other. You don't strum someone else's string; you put them across from each other. You strum your own string, and the one across from it naturally will vibrate. If we light our own Hanukkiot and we open our window shades for the world to see, 
and just be proud of the unique light we have to offer, we will see more light in the world. Sending Great love. session, Shmuley. That's wonderful. Blessings for Thank you. It's wonderful. Yeah. The same blessing to you, Shmuley. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much for lighting up all of our lives. Yes. Thank you, Shmuley.